So are you ready for the Word of God today? Awesome. We're in the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is the good news about Jesus. That's what gospel means. And some call this uh, Peter's Gospel because Mark knew Peter very well. I'm going to show you how he knew him today. Um, Mark also had a cousin named Barnabas, and Barnabas was partnered with Paul as missionaries. And so Mark got to go on mission trips with Paul and uh, Barnabas, one specifically. Um, That's how Mark learned um, the gospel um, being taught through Paul. He also learned the facts of it through Peter because he knew him very well. Mark was influenced by these two great men, but Mark also was influenced by his mother. Um, We see in the Bible that uh, his mother was named Mary. Don't you think like all people in the Bible that are women are named Mary? I feel like there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Um, But Mary was uh, a special woman who hosted the disciples in her home. Mark also um, learned uh, from, uh, followed Jesus, if you will, kind of from the outside. He wasn't in the inner circle, the 12 disciples, but he was kind of on the outside. In fact, some believe that he might have been one of those men that prepared the upper room for the Last Supper. Uh, Some believe he might have been in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested, as I'll explain and show you today. Later in uh, Mark's life, he decided to write down the facts about Jesus, the the history, the life of Jesus. And he did it for a specific reason. There's four Gospels. You might have wondered that. Why are there four? Why is there Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? They're all the the story of Jesus. Well, Mark writes for sort of a different purpose, uh, a specific people group in mind that he had Um, that he wanted to write to. He writes to non-Jewish people called Gentiles, and he writes to to them that are very busy, because they lived in a busy city called Rome. And that's what his intent was. He writes it a little bit later after some of the other books, for example, Romans was already written and in circulation, but he wrote in the late 50s or 60s. You might say that Mark wrote his gospel for you and me. The reason why I say that is because we're Gentiles living in a busy city, aren't we? And Mark wrote his gospel to be really short and sweet and right to the point, and that's what we want, isn't it? We kind of want the bottom line. Just give it to us so we can do what we need to do. And that's Mark. Mark answers four very important questions for every person. He answers these questions. Who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? What did he do? Why did he do it? And how did he do it? And Mark explains, which is our title this morning, the suffering servant. That's who Jesus was. That's his focus, that Mark, that Jesus is the suffering servant, servant, and he gave his life as a ransom for you. Why did he do that? Why did he come? Well, he came not to serve, be, be served, but to serve. And this is how he did it. He lived a perfect life. Jesus never sinned, but then he surrendered that life to death by crucifixion so that you can be forgiven of your sins. So that when God looks at you, if you put your faith in Jesus, he won't see your sin. He'll see the blood of Jesus, and he'll forgive you. There's one uh, verse in Mark that kind of sums it all up. It's in Mark 10, verse 45, which you'll see on the screen. For even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark will tell you as you read it, it's short, You can do it in one sitting. He tells you that Jesus was a man of action. He took your place so you can be forgiven and meet God in heaven. So how do you respond to this wonderful offer, this gift of grace 
through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus is God's son? Do you believe that he died for you? Do you believe that he has an amazing life planned for you? Will you surrender yours to his? In fact, the words are a tough teaching for today. But will you deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus? You can only answer that with your actions. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, may your word get deep into our heart and get past the surface of all of our crazy, busy lives. May we really hear truth today. May your Holy Spirit open eyes. Help us to believe. Help us to understand. Give us a foundation. Help us believe. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I want to tell you a little bit more about Mark. I think it's important that you kind of understand who this man was. And then I want to talk to you about a little teaching that uh, he tended to focus on that Jesus taught. So that's, that's my goal this morning. If you're with me, then say, let's go. Let's go. All right, that's Psalm 122.1. That's my, my son's favorite song, right? When they told me, let's go to the house of the Lord, I was like, let's go, right? I'm excited. Two verses that show up in Mark that don't show up in the other three Gospels. They're kind of strange. So I thought I'd start there. All right, I share with you these two verses because they're, they're a little bit embarrassing, if you will, for a man that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you may have just skipped over these and never, honestly, I didn't really think much about these two verses until I really dove into the word here and, and, and started looking at them. Verse 51 of Mark chapter 14 says, there was a young man who was following Jesus. See, this is Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus just got arrested, right? He's, he, this is the beginning of Passion Week. This is the last week of his life. And, and he's being arrested, taken to the high priest. And there's a man following them. And he's wearing, it says, just a linen cloth, um, which, which is used for burial purposes. And they grabbed this guy. They seized him. And... He left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. All right? Now, this is weird, because the linen cloth is for burial, and why are we talking about a streaker in the Garden of Gethsemane? All right? I'm a little bit, you know, do you feel this way too? All right? Why is Mark the only one to share this? Now, there are scholars, okay, who believe this is actually Mark, okay, because he's the only one who shares it. But sometimes, you know, scholars are really book smart, and they're not so street smart, you know? You know the person, right? They're really, really smart, but when it comes to, like, living, yeah, they don't get it. But here's why I say that, because Mark, you know, why would he share that if this was an embarrassing moment in his life? But, but there are some scholars that think, well, it's possible here that Peter, who he got his facts from, um, got a really big kick out of it, you know, and, and probably was giving him a hard time, you know, later on in life. He's like, you know, Mark, remember that time you ran through the garden naked? Remember that? You got to put that in there, okay? That, you know, I just, I can't forget that. That was really funny. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, some scholars think that maybe that was Lazarus, because Lazarus, of course, was brought back from the dead, um, and he had that linen cloth um, perhaps still um, in his possession. 
We don't know. I will tell you, though, personally, I lean towards the fact that it is Mark. I think it was Mark. And the reason why I say that is because I think it's what makes the Gospels so authentic, so raw with truth. You see, Lee Strobel points out in The Case for Christ, which is an amazing book, if you ever want to um, uh, question, if you've ever questioned, like, did Jesus really live and all of the facts about him. And he points out that the Gospel stories, the four Gospels, they're not perfectly lined up. It's not like four guys got together and got their story straight. Like, they, they come from different perspectives. They're not like that. They didn't collaborate. The Gospels corroborate. They, they, they support one another. And, and one, one of the facts that I really like about it is that it's not very popular, and, and there's no way if they collaborated they would have brought this up. Um, women were the first to see Jesus alive after the resurrection. Now, why is that an issue? Because in that culture, women were not credible witnesses. So why would you ever mention that a woman saw Jesus alive if you're trying to prove that Jesus is alive? And they're not credible witnesses. You wouldn't, which is why it makes it so truthful, so authentic. It's just wonderful. And we want the truth, don't we, my friends? I don't want to believe a lie. I want to believe the truth. And that's what we have here in Mark. Now, how did Mark get to know Peter? Okay, well, Peter, there was a time, was arrested in Jerusalem. This is after Jesus was resurrected, and now the disciples are starting the church. Peter got arrested, and the, 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 the people in Jerusalem were praying for them, for Peter, in someone's home. And there was a miracle. Jesus, uh, um, Peter was um, freed from the prison in the middle of the night, and Peter knew where to go. He went to that home where all of those disciples were praying for him. And you might know the story, he knocks on the door, and everybody's like, uh, Rhoda, answer the door, right? And says, oh yeah, uh, Peter's at the door. And they're like, no, whatever, Rhoda, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, you know, and it's like, hey man, you're praying for Peter. <laughs> he shows up, and you're like, nah, we don't believe it, you know. It's kind of a funny story. But where were they at? What home were they? And Acts 12, 12 tells us. He realized this. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. Many were gathered there praying. So Mary's home, Mark's home, if you will, was a place that all the disciples went to. And so Peter knew to go there. So Mark got to know Peter, right? And he probably spent a lot of time with Peter and got all of those facts about Jesus and that's how he's able to write the gospel. Now, Mark had another unique opportunity in that his cousin was Barnabas, and Barnabas was partners with Paul, and they did mission trips around the Mediterranean Sea, planting churches. We see in Acts 12, 25, Barnabas and Saul had come from Jerusalem when they completed their service, and they brought with them John Mark, who, John, whose name was Mark. So that was really, I think, exciting for Mark. Here he is, kind of in Jerusalem, kind of in his bubble. You know how it is when you live in your bubble? You know, maybe some of you have never quite got out of your bubble yet. You know, you've never gone away to school, or you never um, went and lived in another city, or gone to another country, or any of that. Well, here Mark's about to do that, right? For the first time in his life, he's about to leave his comfort zone, if you will, his home, and he's about to go on mission for God. And it says in Acts 13.5, 
They arrived at Salamis. They proclaimed the word of God, that's Paul and Barnabas, in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John Mark to assist them. I remember my first mission trip to another country. We went to Prague in the Czech Republic for a 10-day mission trip. Wonderful opportunity, shared our faith, shared the love of Jesus. It was a, just a, a great experience. Got to see um, the Czech Republic. Prague is an amazing city to be in, um, experiencing their culture and everything. And, but I remember after 10 days, just 10 days, I wanted to go home, man. I, I missed my family. I wanted to get back home. And I think that's probably what happened to Mark because we find out just a little bit longer down here in verse 13, Paul and his companions set sail for, from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. That's a lot of P's right there. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And unfortunately, that didn't sit well with Paul um, because when they went to the second mission trip, the second time, um, they didn't want to, Paul didn't want to take uh, Mark again. It says in Acts chapter 15, verses 37 through 39, Barnabas wanted to take his cousin, because they're cousins, right? They don't, you stick together, right? Cousins? They do that. And uh, Paul thought it best not to take him, because he had gone back uh, when they were on their mission trip before. And Paul and Barnabas got into an argument about that, and they separated, unfortunately. Um, Barnabas, though, did take his cousin Mark, and they went a kind of a different direction. I know it's hard to believe that church people would argue. I know it doesn't happen very often and all, um, but uh, it happens. I'm kidding. It does happen. And, uh, but these men, they continued in their calling, and they served the Lord. Good news is Paul didn't hold a grudge. We actually read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, he writes to Timothy saying, Luke's with me, but get Mark. And bring him with you, because he's very useful to me in my ministry. So it's good, good to see that Mark had this kind of um, great relationship with, with Peter and with Paul. Had a great life, had lots of experiences to, to help him mature. And I think overall, Mark was the kind of guy that had uh, the goal of being a man of action and serving. And I think he got that from Jesus. You know, I think we all, whether we know, whether we, we realize it or not, we, we, we have certain things about the Bible that jump out at us, that resonate more with us. You know what I mean? Like, you might read the Gospels, and you might read something about Jesus' life, and you'd be like, yeah, that's like me. Like, I, I like that about Jesus. It's, it's, I think that's what Mark did. I think Mark knew, life, knew the life of Jesus, and I think he realized that that Jesus was a man of action, and he was a man who, who was called to serve. And that's what he wanted to let other people know. He wanted to let the world know that even though you're busy all the time, because that's what he seemed to be surrounded with, and many believe he was in Rome, in the busy city, when he wrote the gospel. And um, he wanted to show that Jesus was also a busy man, and he acted. Um, in fact, J. Vernon McGee, the great Bible teacher, says, Mark was written by a busy man for a busy people um, about a busy person. I love that. Mark was written for a busy, by a busy man for busy people about a busy person. Now, there are so many acts of service in the book of Mark. When you read it, you'll see there's more acts of service than there are um, teachings. I mean, he talks about Jesus 
uh, healing Peter's mother-in-law and a leper and a man with palsy and a man with a withered hand and a woman with a bleeding issue and a deaf man and two blind men. And then he did nature miracles where he stilled the storm and he fed 5,000 and he fed 4,000 and he walked on water and he exercised demons and he raised people to life. He was a man of action. He served. He came to serve. And all that serving that Jesus did All those miracles that he did made him pretty famous. I mean, let's face it. If somebody today started doing miracles, they'd be pretty famous, especially if they were authentic and not made up, right? If we had someone like that today, they would be pretty famous. And Jesus was pretty famous. He was very well known. But Jesus started to sort of turn the corner here in his teachings, and he began to explain to them that I'm not here to be famous on earth. I'm here for a different reason. And he's about to tell these disciples that I'm going to suffer a great deal. And that is actually my greatest act of service. The greatest act of service that I'm going to do is when I suffer an excruciating death on a cross so that you can be forgiven. And he's going to explain this to them. But it doesn't really sit well with these disciples. Just like this message doesn't really sit well with a lot of Christians today. Because if you've watched the American Gospel, you know that many people want to tell you that we're the hero of the story. But God is the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. This message is counter to our culture. Because in our culture, We have this intense desire to be the greatest, do we not? I mean, we love Muhammad Ali's saying, right? Float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. See, I knew you knew it. Because Muhammad Ali was always, I'm the greatest of all time, right? And that's our culture. That's what we love. We want to be the greatest of all time. And to be the greatest, Muhammad Ali taught you to knock out your opponent. But Jesus says to be the greatest... You need to die for your opponent. Boy, that's counterculture, isn't it? That's totally different. Jesus points this, or Mark points this out in uh, Mark chapter 8. This is when the, it starts to change, if you will. And I'm going to bring to you a few texts here and, and um, help you see it. Mark 8, um, verse 31. This is when Jesus began to teach that he must suffer many things He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly to them. (laughs) And then Peter, who was kind of the leader of the disciples, if you will, um, he did what probably we would do. He he spoke up and said, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. He began to rebuke Jesus. Can you imagine that? Jesus, stop talking like this. You're famous. You had 22 million views on Facebook with your last healing. we got to get into TikTok. Hit the next generation. Come on, Jesus. What are you doing? Don't talk like this. You're not going to die. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You're talking like the devil. You're not setting the things, setting your mind on things of God. You're setting your mind on things of man. You want me to be this earthly king That's not why I'm here. And he called the crowd to to him with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, 
Anybody who's going to follow me, he's going to have to deny himself, take up his cross. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Did you sign up for that when you became a Christian? When you were baptized in his name, did you surrender your life at the foot of the cross? Because that's what Jesus taught you to do. That's what Mark is trying to point out here. The disciples, though, they were quick to forget that. I mean, he said to them plainly, I'm going to die. But they didn't want to hear that. In fact, in Mark chapter 9, verse 33, they came to this place called Capernaum. He was in his house, in a house, and he asked them, Hey, guys, what were you talking about on the way here? And they were like, whoop. (laughs) They didn't want to say because they were arguing with one another, who was the greatest? Mark 9, 34. Who was the greatest? And so he sat down, and he called these 12, and he said to them, if any of you would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And then he took a child, like McKenna, and he cradled that child in his arms. And he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why did Jesus take a child and show the disciples? Why did he use a child? And the answer is because in that culture, children were the least significant. They were the least of all. This this is why I'm here. You must be the least of all. Of course, the disciples didn't get it. They're young men. Do we young men ever get anything right the first few times? No. How many, guys, how many times, guys, do uh, our wives have to tell us <laughs> before we do something or get it right? Uh, at least three, right? All right, well, here we go. Mark chapter 10. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. Get these kids away from Jesus. He's got more important things to do. They meant well, okay? But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, mad at them. He said, let these little children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them and he laid his hands on these children. Jesus encourages you today to have the faith of a child. Think about it. When our kids were little, they probably won't do this now, but when they were little, I could have them up on a 10-foot ladder and say, jump. And they would jump right into my arms. And they would do it again and again and again. Because they had faith that I was going to catch them. They never doubted that I was going to catch them. That's the kind of faith that we need to have. Faith of a child. Where we'll just jump. And trust God. Two of the disciples just couldn't let it go. James and John, the sons of thunder. They wanted to be the greatest. Mark 10, verse 35. The sons of Zebedee came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. I always crack up at that. How bold is that? Rabbi, my teacher... Give us what we want, whatever we ask. And he said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Because again, they're thinking earthly kingdom. 
one at your left. Jesus said, you don't even know what you're asking. But then he says this, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? That's referring to his death. Remember, he said that in the garden. Father, take this cup from me. Or are you to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And right here, you get a glimpse of the definition of baptism, if you will. It's a symbol of his death and his burial and his resurrection. And they said, yep, we're able. And Jesus said, well, the cup I drink, you will drink, meaning they would die as martyrs. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized, meaning they would be identified as followers of Jesus Christ. They were baptized in his name. Now, the ten heard it. The other ten heard it. And what do you think? Were they pretty happy with James and John? No way. They were mad as hornets at him, right? Jesus called them and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles will lord over them, and the great ones that exercise authority over them. But that's now how it shall be among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever is first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples would eventually get it. Most of them would die as martyrs. I don't know if you knew that or not. They would become suffering servants. In fact, Mark died uh, a horrible death. It's reported that he was, um, had a rope put around his neck and dragged by horse through the city until he died. Horrible death for his faith. Now, I said this is a teaching that not many people want to hear. In fact, you go home and turn on your TV and you watch one of those TV preachers and they will never teach from this text. They won't ask you if you'll die for your faith. You know what they'll ask you. Will you send your money in? <laughs> That's what they'll say. But is God calling you to die for your faith? I say, yeah, he is. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be a martyr, but he's calling you to surrender your life to him. To surrender your life to him. Do you have a plan for your life? I'm looking at some really smart, good-looking people right now. And I bet you have a great plan for your life. You've been kind of executing it all along. You're thinking about the future. You've got a lot of things planned. I wonder if you've got a little room for Jesus in there. I'm suggesting to you today that you might just throw out that plan and start over and put God first. Just put God first. Make him the CEO of your life. McKenna agrees. Before you make decisions, ask God what he thinks. Come to church. Hear from God. Open your Bible. Hear from God. So many times we pray, which is our talking to God, but do we listen? Do we get into the Word and hear what God is saying to us? Because God wants you to live a life of purpose. A life where you serve Him, the King of Kings. And I think today you need to make a decision. I'm calling you, I'm asking you to make a decision today. I see this happening 
all the time in this church. People making decisions to walk with God. Greg and Emily came today to dedicate their child, to raise her as a Christian. Two weeks ago, we saw up here Amy, Josh, and Mackenzie baptized. And what you didn't see yet, what we have some video, is Matt. I baptized him out in Lake St. Clair um, that same week. I'm leaving teaching, becoming a full-time pastor. Barry chose to buy a building, partner with his brother Dale in, in a church. And What are you going to decide? What's your next step? Is it time to lay it all down? Aren't you tired of doing it all by yourself? Don't you want to just lay it all down once and for all? Trust God. Surrender your life. If you are, I want to encourage you on that connection card that's near you to just write that down. I'd love to be able to pray for you, but just write down that decision that you're making today. Maybe there's something specific you need to decide to do, and you want to do that today. Today's the day you take that next step closer to God, whatever it might be. That's what this is all about. God wants you to walk with him every day. Get closer to him. And I'd love to be able to pray for you. So if you can, fill out that connection card. Put that in, your, in the table in the back. And we have a song that I think will help us as we sing it. Are we ready to come up and sing it? And I'm going to pray as the team's coming up. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you for the gospel of Mark. Thank you for Mark. He lived a great life. He lived a life where he, he served you. He shared his faith. He shared the life of your son Jesus. And we can learn so much from reading his gospel. Father, I pray that we are people of action. That we take steps towards walking with you, towards being with you, towards living for you. We surrender our life to you. God, help us to do that. We know it doesn't happen overnight. I know it didn't happen overnight for me, God. I know that you worked on me and you worked on me and you worked on me and you're still working on me. And I know you're doing the same thing in everyone's here, in everyone's lives here. I pray, Father, that you continue to do that. I pray that today, once and for all, we would just lay it down, surrender our life to you. In Jesus' name.